The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 9, Urbanization and Immigration in the Late 19th Century, Part 1. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back. Before we get started, as always, thank you for listening. Please visit our website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can sign up for our email list. Um, I promise I won't spam your inbox daily with stuff. If you're into the social media thing, um, you can follow me on Twitter, at American Hiscast. If you'd like to help out the show, you can join our Patreon. The list, or the link, I should say, is on the website. And I appreciate everyone who has joined as it really does help cover the cost of books and the website and hosting. As a matter of fact, um, we've had a few more folks sign up, so it's time to give them a shout-out. Our newest members are Fernie Rodriguez, Cara Domizio, and Thomas Lashbrook. Thank you very much for your kind support. It really does mean a lot to me. Um, if you want to help out and you want to access that bonus show, 1983, the year the world almost ended, head over to the website. Click on the Patreon button down near the bottom. And for as little as about $3 a month, you'll have access to that Patreon series. Now, if you sign up for the $5 a month level, you'll get access to a show that I'm planning on doing at least once a year, perhaps more if there's enough people signed up for it, um, on a controversial topic in history. So I'll be busting some major myths, and I'm hope to, hoping to do that particular episode sometime in the next month or two. As always, you can email me questions or comments or concerns. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. And um, as I've said, there's various ways to help support the show, to keep the lights on, so to speak. Obviously, there's Patreon. Um, but another way that you can do that is by heading over to the website and checking out the sources. For every source, every source there's a hyperlink to Amazon. And if you enter Amazon through that link, we get a few pennies from our rich uncle Jeff Bezos. And even if you end up buying something totally different, you don't buy the actual book that's linked. Just as long as you enter Amazon through one of our links, um, he sends us a little kickback. And it costs you nothing. So please, head over there and check that out. Finally, a third way is um, if you're looking for either adult enrichment or maybe something to supplement your high school education for your kids during this time of pandemic and everything being shut down, you can click on our Liberty Classroom link. That's also on the main page. Now, if you join through that link, we get a kickback. Now, your question, of course, is what is Liberty Classroom? Um, this is the site of Dr. Tom Woods, a PhD in history from Columbia University. He's also got his BA from Harvard. Um, you'll have access to courses like American history, economics, all sorts of goodies from people like Woods, economist Dr. Robert Murphy, Dr. Kevin Gutzman, who's a famous historian specializing in the founding and the revolutionary era. So um, go check it out. Okay, our song of the week this week is... Put on your old gray bonnet from 1909. We'll see you on the other side. And of course, as always, it's courtesy of the Internet Archive. On the old farmhouse veranda, there sat Silas and Miranda, thinking of the days gone by. 
said he'd cheery, don't be weary, you were always bright and cheery, but a tear now dims your eye. Said she, there tears of gladness, silence, there are not tears of sadness, it is fifty years today since we were wed. And the old man semi brightened, and his turn old heart is lightened, and he turned to her and said, Put on your old grey bonnet with the blue ribbon on it while I hit old job into the chair and through the field of All right, so let's start off today talking a bit about urbanization. And I want to mention eight things about this. I hope I got the number right. I'm very bad at math. So if I'm wrong, if it's 7 or 10, uh, please don't email me any hate mail. I apologize for that. But the population of the country between 1870 and 1900 doubled to about 80 million. Now, that's an incredible increase in population. And then by 1920, it rose to 105 million. In the cities, the population tripled. And by 1900, 40% of Americans lived in cities. One example of this incredible growth was New York City, which by 1900 had 3.5 million people and was the second largest city in the world. Both Chicago and Philadelphia had over a million people. Um, No American city had 1 million people in 1860. So, yeah, that's a major increase. Now, that leads us to the question of how. How is all this possible? The answer, quite simply, was steel. Steel allowed for the construction of taller buildings, Iron, of course, could not withstand the enormous weight of a skyscraper, so you could not use iron. And not only was steel needed, but so were elevators. Once you had steel, and once elevator technology was perfected, boom, you get skyscrapers. Now, although disputed, I will say the first steel skyscraper was the Home Insurance Building, built in Chicago in 1885. This building was 10 stories tall. Um, It was designed by William LeBaron Jenny. Sadly, it was demolished in 1931 to make way for a new structure, the field building. And not only did you need the technology to make these amazing buildings possible, but you needed a visionary, an architect, to do the important designing. And that man was Louis Sullivan, perhaps the most important architect in the development of the skyscraper. It was Sullivan who advanced the idea that form follows function when making buildings. Um, some consider his Wainwright building, built in 1891, in St. Louis to be the first true skyscraper. Now, another important architectural and engineering achievement was the Brooklyn Bridge. Designed by John A. Roebling, this linked the boroughs of Manhattan and Brooklyn, two of America's three largest cities at the time. The actual technical achievement was that this was the first ever suspension bridge built in the United States. So yay for that. We, um, we also have population growing. We have new architectural marvels like skyscrapers and suspension bridges. Now, the third thing was the development of mass transit-facilitated commuting. Okay, Before this development, one had to live fairly close to his or her place of employment. However, thanks to the electric streetcar, people could now live further away. This was perhaps the most important development. One result of this was the emergence of what some people refer to as streetcar suburbs. These were areas where middle-class and some upper-class people lived as they were now able to move further away from the center of the city where they worked. You also had the emergence of electric subways, which also helped people travel around these large cities. Now, another result of all this is the fact that the largest cities in America became a megalopolis divided into distinctly different districts for business, industry, and residences. 
These districts were divided or segregated along lines of race, ethnicity, and social class. Thus, you have the emergence of a Jewish section in New York City, as well as a Little Italy, or in San Francisco, you get Chinatown. Now, a fifth aspect to all of this is the fact that economic and social opportunities were available in the city that were not available in the country. These acted as a magnet, and they drew people away from the farms in the villages and into the cities, because those areas just couldn't compete. Furthermore, at this point, commercial districts blossomed with the modern department store emerging. These department stores drove many of these so-called mom-and-pop stores out of business as they could not offer the enormous selection and the lower prices that department stores provided. Not only did cities have jobs and commercial districts to lure people in, they had entertainment, electricity, indoor plumbing, and telephones. In other words, a better quality of life. Furthermore, they offered women career opportunities that were not available in the rural areas. Amongst these opportunities were new jobs like social workers, secretaries, store clerks, seamstresses, telephone operators, and even bookkeepers. Many of the poorer women, however, worked in deplorable conditions, such as sweatshops, while newly arrived immigrant women might have to resort to prostitution to make money, even if only temporarily. On the other hand, middle and upper class women usually did not need to work. Remember, it was still socially acceptable or unacceptable to be a working woman. The only occupations that were acceptable were things like teaching, nursing, and clerical work, at least for women. Additionally, by 1900, over 5 million women worked for wages. 18% worked in the clothing and garment industries, and nearly 40% were domestic servants. Others were farm laborers, teachers, and sales clerks. Most of these women were young, poor, and unmarried, some freshly arrived from abroad. And amongst these women, castes emerged. Clerking was seen as respectable work, and open mainly to American girls, i.e. white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, as one example. On the other hand, factory work was not respectable, or should I say it was less so. Usually, they employed farm girls or working class girls. Now, the bottom of the pyramid was the domestic servants. Um, they were considered the bottom class. They were usually either foreign-born or African-American. They often worked 12-hour days, uh, six days a week. Unlike, say, the factory workers who did have unions, these workers had no organization whatsoever. Now, similarly, you had class distinctions becoming, according to some historians, the most pronounced in American history by 1900. At this time, you had a new class of super wealthy, the nouveau riche, come about. And these historians note that in 1890, um, the wealthiest 1% of families owned 51% of real and personal property. In the meantime, 44% of the families at the bottom owned 1.2% of all property. Now, one critique I have of this is that these historians, they fail to provide us with any context to who these people are. I'd be interested, for example, in how many of these um, or those on the bottom half were newly arrived immigrants. How long did people stay in that category? Because you should remember that these groups are not monolithic. People rise and fall into and out of any particular category all the time. Now, one example of this that I can give you is Ernst Kohlberg. Kohlberg was a Jewish immigrant from Germany who arrived in the United States in 1875. He settled in El Paso, Texas, and while he had to rely on a sponsor to bring him to the U.S., he worked for a year with no pay to repay the ticket, as well as the room and board, and that he eventually became quite wealthy. By the time he was murdered in the early 1900s, Mr. Kohlberg owned a hotel and a cigar business and was a wealthy man. So, it is important to remember that the idea of the rich as being some monolithic group that never changes is incorrect. Another um, criticism that I have is they, we never hear what is, what is the ideal 
distribution of this property and this wealth. It, obviously, they figure that 1.2% being owned by the bottom um, families, and yet the you know top families owning 51%, they believe that's wrong. Okay, but what is... What is the ideal distribution of wealth? We've not, I've never seen anybody say, well, it should be X or Y. So that's another criticism that I have. Okay, but enough of that. Um, if you look at the various classes, you have the wealthy or the well-to-do. Um, the Marxist historian Howard Zinn notes that 12% of the families owned 86% of the nation's wealth. They traveled to Europe as children. They attended colleges or academies, and they owned more than one home. They often employed servants, and they believed in the identity of interest as social order. What that means is that every class has its place in society, and they should not challenge it. Now, the middle class, it was made up of, on the lower end, salesmen, clerks, government workers, and teachers. On the upper end were the lawyers and the doctors. They usually lived in relatively large homes and might employ one servant. As for women, respectable women did not debate public issues. Now, finally, you had the working class. These folks were often Irish Catholics, or they were from Eastern and Southern Europe, or they were African American. Between 23 to 30% of the workforce was out of work for some period every year. By 1900, about 20% of all American children under the age of 15 worked in non-agricultural jobs. Furthermore, about 20% of working class women worked. Most of them were young, in between school age and the age of marriage. Now, before we go on, let me offer, I don't know if I want to call it a criticism, perhaps it's more of a comment. Children were working jobs, be they industrial jobs or agricultural jobs, for centuries. Yes, I know the industrial jobs had not existed that long, but children always worked. Why? Because society was poor. Families were poor, and they needed all to contribute to the economic survival of the family. But in the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution, this situation started to change. No, it was not thanks to governments passing child labor laws. Often those actually came afterwards. Instead, what happened is that society became wealthier as it became more productive thanks to the Industrial Revolution. More goods meant those goods cost less. Those goods then make your life better or they make you more productive as a worker. Society became wealthier and in the 20th century, countries like England and the United States saw a major drop in child labor and college participation increased. So let's talk about cities. Urban areas for centuries had been areas where there was rampant crime. Goods and services, which are illegal today, were not at that point in time. Thus, you had prostitution, drugs, gambling, etc. But you also had the usual violent crime and theft as well. Conditions have never been sanitary, and they were not in the late 19th century either. I think it was the historian Niall Ferguson who remarked that London in the 15th century was a city that you could smell before you could see it. This was probably true for many cities. Now, as these cities grew, they needed a way to fit in all of these people uh, into these areas. So in 1879, you got the formation of the Dumbbell Tenement. These were often seven to eight stories high with little ventilation, and by the end of the century, they accounted for about one half of the housing in New York City. Before we move on, I want to say that while these tenements did receive criticism later on, they did represent an improvement over what had been available before. Okay, one final topic when it comes to cities is the politics. Um, Cities saw the rise of the infamous political machines um, where one party dominated through a spoil system and used the political system to make money for party leaders, much of which was unethical and illegal. Hmm, sounds like it's not changed all that much. (laughs) 
In case you're wondering, one of the ways it worked was for wealthy interests to pay off politicians in order to profit from municipal and state projects. Heck, this sounds a lot like politics in my city. The most famous of these political machines was Tammany Hall. The machine in New York City, which was the largest and most notorious of all of them. It was run by Boss Tweed, his real name being William Marcy Tweed. And he, of course, was the most notorious of all the corrupt political bosses. He led what was called the Tweed Ring that used bribery, graft, and fraudulent elections to gain perhaps $200 million at the expense of New York City. He was exposed in 1871 by the New York Times thanks to the political cartoons of Thomas Nast. In case you're wondering, Nast is often credited with creating the modern political cartoon. Samuel Tilden ended up prosecuting Tweed and sent him to jail, where he died a few years later. But that wasn't the end of the machine. Later, George Washington Plunkett, a minor boss in the Tammany machine, gained notoriety for his pandering to immigrants and for corruption. His favorite play was to find out about imminent projects from the local civil board and then go out and buy the land secretly. He then resold it to the city at a higher price. This is what he called honest graft, (laughs) as opposed to an honest graft, as if there's a such thing. Now, New York was not the only city that had a machine. Others, such as Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, St. Louis, and Kansas City also developed political, powerful political machines. Reformers during the Progressive Era hated these practices, and they worked to try and curb the power of the machine. Now, I mentioned it briefly already, but let's turn our attention more specifically to immigration, particularly what historians call the new immigration. Up to the 1840s, immigrants to the United States were mostly Anglo-Saxons from Britain and Western Europe, mainly Germany and Scandinavia. Most of these people were literate and easily adaptable to American society. Now, of course, I realized there was a group of immigrants who came here under duress, and that's African-American slaves, or African slaves, sorry, but we aren't talking about that in this episode. We're referring to the willing immigrants, or at least to those who were more willing to come than slaves. Between 1850 and 1880, over 6 million immigrants arrived, and once again, they were what was called the old immigration. If you've seen the film Gangs of New York by Martin Scorsese, you have an idea about some of the stereotypes applied to immigrants, at least those of Irish descent. Germans were seen as sturdy, hardworking, serious people, and they constituted the largest number of immigrants to the United States by 1900. There was a change in attitude, however, towards German immigrants by the early 20th century, and that's thanks to the social upheavals Germany experienced in the mid-19th century. By this point, the early 20th century, they were seen as socialists, anarchists, and even communists. When it comes to religion, Germans could be Protestant, Catholic, or even Jewish, as we saw with Ernst Kohlberg, whom I mentioned earlier. However, not all were seen in a negative light. Some joined the Republican Party, and they were able to gain respectability amongst the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Now, on the other hand, you had the Irish. And just for full disclosure, my father's mom was an Irish immigrant who came to the United States early in the 20th century. But to move on, the Irish were seen as dirty, drunk, immoral, Catholic, and violent. And there, were, there was a lot of immigration from Ireland. As a matter of fact, while they were second overall to Germans between 1840 and 1860, the Irish actually outnumbered the Germans. The Irish would go on to become America's first working class, and many could not, at least at first, afford land. But many did climb into the middle class, often through politics. Mostly Irish were Democrats, and that helped to feed the stereotype of corrupt political machines using immigrants for their own purposes. Yet, on the other hand, you had, between 1880 and 1920, what is referred to as the new immigration. 
most of these folks came from Eastern and Southern Europe. Italians, Jews, Poles, Greeks, Hungarians, Croats, Slovenian, Slovaks, Czechs, and Bulgarian, Serbian, Montenegrin in their origins. By 1910, one-third of Americans were either foreign-born or had one parent who was foreign-born. Compare that to 1890, when only 19% had a foreign-born parent. Now, most immigrants came through Ellis Island in New York Harbor, 1882 and 1954. However, there were other points of entry. For example, immigrants from Asia tended to come in through San Francisco Bay at a place called Angel Island. Others came through Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Chicago, Charleston, Galveston, Mobile, New Orleans, and Seattle. These new immigrants came to live in enclaves in New York and Chicago, as well as other major cities, think Philadelphia, Boston, San Francisco, and Seattle, where their numbers were quite large. Many were either Orthodox Christians or Jewish, and they came over from Eastern Europe. Most of their home countries had little to no experience with democracy, and they were heavily illiterate. As do many who move from one country to another, the new immigrants struggled to maintain their cultures in America. To try and maintain their culture, they set up things like Catholic parochial schools and Jewish Hebrew schools. They also created foreign newspapers, theaters, food stores, restaurants, parishes, and even social clubs, all in an effort to try and maintain their culture. However, the children of the immigrants who were born here in the United States often rejected parts or all of their parents' culture in an attempt to assimilate into mainstream American society. Now, having said all that, there is one question that demands an answer. Why did this immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe take place? There are at least four reasons. First, overpopulation in Europe and rapid industrialization. Changes in society, thanks to the Industrial Revolution, meant the old way of life was no longer possible to maintain. That leads to the second reason. America was seen as a land of opportunity. Remember, conditions in Eastern and Southern Europe were often less than ideal. A third reason was that industrialists often were seeking low-wage labor, so there were jobs in America. You also had railroads seeking buyers for their land grants, so land could be purchased fairly cheaply. States wanted more population, and steamship lines wanted more business. All of these interests came together to make the move from Eastern or Southern Europe a possibility. A fourth and final factor, one which pushed immigrants out, was the persecution of minorities in Europe. For example, Jews were savagely persecuted in Russia in the 1880s, especially in Polish areas and in Russia due to pogroms. Most of the Jewish immigrants went to New York and were resented by German Jews, who, in some instances, had arrived decades earlier, as well as wasps. Most of these folks had lived in cities in Europe and worked as tailors or shopkeepers, and they were difficult to assimilate since they lived together in enclaves. So, in Europe, these minorities faced persecution, but they also faced economic hardship, and, to add insult to injury, they were then often conscripted into military service in those home countries. One last comment before we sign off for today. Of the 20 million who came to the United States between 1820 and 1900, 25% went back to Europe. These are called birds of passage. A bird of passage was someone who came and stayed for a time and then returned to the original country. Perhaps they came due to economic dislocation, made some money, and then when the conditions improved back home, they went back. Perhaps they had no desire to assimilate into American culture and were homesick. Either way, at least one quarter of the people coming from Europe went back home. Okay, so that's it for today. Um, next time, we'll cover the Chinese immigration, and we'll wrap up this discussion of immigration and urbanization in the late 19th century. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and you'll have a great day.
Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. 